0: Welcome to the Hunters and Closers podcast. I'm Danan Haggard, and I'm here to help you fill your pipeline, decrease your time to close, and crush your sales quotas. This is Danan Haggard with Hunters and Closers. I'm joined today with the CEO of RisePoint, Frank Malet. Appreciate you, Frank, taking some time with us. Glad to be here. I do want to introduce him. Frank is recognized for his intensity, his intelligence, and integrity. He brings more than 20 years of experience leading selling and expanding software service organizations. Frank has also worked uh, at other companies such as Workfront, InContact, Kibera Technologies, IBM, and Novell. And just last year, Frank was named the CEO of the year by Utah Business Magazine, and CEO of the Year by Utah Technology Council in 2016. He has won a Stevie for Executive of the Year in the 2017 American Business Awards. Frank is a 2014 recipient of Selling Power Magazine's 50 Best Companies in America to Sell For. We're gonna talk a little bit more about that. And ranking at number 20 it was when they, that award came in. He holds a bachelor's degree in business from the University of Phoenix and studied business administration and management at the University of Utah. So thank you, Frank, very much for joining us today.
1: Glad, glad to be here. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Absolutely. So when you hear the words hunter and closer, what, what does that mean to you?
1: I, I think when I hear the words hunter and closer, it falls into lifeblood, right? That's, that's kind of been my life, uh, the sales trajectory, and trying to figure out exactly what I wanted to be when I grew up and and fell into cells and... and and the concept of, of actually being able to interact with people and do it adding value to their world and monetary value to my world, i.e. my career, um, is, is just uh, obviously dear to me, right? It's what I've, what I've done, so.
0: Awesome. So in 2014, you were the Executive Vice President of Sales at another SaaS company here in Silicon Slopes, Utah. At that time, you won an award for selling from Selling Power Magazine for having the top 20 best companies in America to sell for. How do you make your sales environment the best?
1: Yeah, great question. You know, when you when you think about sales, um, it really runs a gambit, right? It, it starts from guys that may be selling uh, newspapers on the corner all the way to, you know, enterprise salespeople that are doing multi-million dollar deals. But one thing about sales and make sales guys successful, salespeople successful, is sales leadership, right? Being able to get the right kind of leadership, helping them drive their individual lines of business to to drive the revenue for the company. And I've always felt that, uh, you know, sales leaders have to have two key traits. Number one is they have to be able to motivate. They have to have that capability of of, of, of really helping the salespeople in their organization figure things out. And, you know, sales is tough, right? Sure. We, we all know that. It's, it's never a straight trajectory, you know, like uh, Elon Musk and SpaceX up into space, right? A lot of times there's dips, there's valleys, there's challenges. There are uh, signatures that don't come in time for the end of the quarter. And as a salesperson, you know, you, you run this roller coaster of, of highs and lows, So a sales manager, sales leadership has to be able to create that environment where where the team is motivated for the right reasons and constantly driving, even through the bad times, understanding that there's going to be light at the end of the tunnel. So that's the first thing, ability to motivate. And I think the second uh, trait that sales leadership needs to have is the ability to empathize. You know, quite often uh, I've seen sales leaders forget where they came from. They were the guy or gal with the, with the quota that felt was unattainable. Their territory had just shrunk. <clears throat> you know, the company's putting continual upward pressure on quotas and targets. And, you know, sales leaders sometimes forget that it's hard. And they have to understand that that salesperson is going through, you know, an emotional change cycle as well as professional change cycle and, and helping them guide their activities to success in that, in that area. So if they're not empathetic and they don't relate to what the sales guys are feeling, uh, it puts them in a really distanced position. And you know, I've worked for, and maybe you've worked for, sales leaders that do that quite often, right? They, they say, here's the number, go do it, and they kind of turn their back and walk away. And uh, that's a failure. So back in, you know, we got that award from Selling Power, I've always tried to build these organizations and my leadership teams and my, my salespeople with those understandings, that we get it, we get how tough the job is, and we can do it. And this is how we're going to do it. So those two elements come together for success. And, uh, you know, that, that award was given to us uh, as a team through, you know, surveys and all kinds of things that came into the organization. And we were very proud of that because at the time, I, th- I can't remember the exact placements, but we had had uh, outpaced and awarded a higher position than some great companies. I think Cisco was below us and Microsoft and a few others. So so we were very proud that we had built an organization, uh, you know, coupled around those two principles of of, of motivation and empathy that uh, was successful. And we had a, a great ride back in those days at Workfront. We did some great things. That's awesome. Yeah.
0: Tell me, so just to build upon that a little bit more, showing empathy as a sales leader how do you do that without demotivating right because sometimes they do look for you know the the sales leader to understand what they're going through or to give them a break if you will how do you show that empathy but still push the number
1: yeah you know let's let's make sure that we understand when I when I say empathy I'm not saying um going going uh well I'm not gonna use that term let's use a different term uh, becoming so so empathetic that you believe that they can't get to where they need to be, right? So it's understanding it's difficult, understanding the quota is higher, understanding the funnel may be light. But a key to a good sales leader is the ability to help that rep figure out how to make it happen. Okay. So it's not just understanding it's hard, but it's hard and here's how we're going to do it. And that's the extra step that takes a lot of brain power from the sales leadership. They've got to take time to, to plan and to um, uh, chart out the necessary steps to get to where they need to be. And, you know, some sales leaders, um, I'm not going to use the term lazy, but, you know, it's, it's easy to get complacent and, and think that I've got a team around me or a big team under me. And, uh, and, and they'll all be able to hit the number and do what they need to do. Or the majority will hit the number and I'll hit my number. Or I've got a couple of high-powered, you know, uh, aces in the hole that will, will absolutely kill it. And they'll carry the rest of the team. But good leadership's got to plan across the team and, and try to ensure that everyone makes it. And that takes effort. That's
0: awesome. I appreciate that. So what does a... Um as you look at culture, culture is so important to a company, to a sales team, to an organization. How do you build uh, a valuable sales culture? What what are the key elements there in the culture?
1: Well, I think, um, you know, first and foremost is trust. And when I've run uh, sales teams in the past, you know, one of the elements that I've really focused on, Dana, was really being honest and appropriately transparent with the team. So they understood that, you know, uh, we're not playing games we're in this together and together we're going to succeed the second element is is i love to celebrate success and i think companies forget that yeah there's a president's club trip that most companies do every year but it's success around the little things now i've never had a gong and we've never you know closed a deal and run out (laughs) you know and like uh, in the movies and and, uh, bang the gong and said congratulations a sale just happened but we celebrate appropriately based on, on milestones or targets or big deals that come in. And we ensure that, that we recognize the people that are doing the work, that are closing the deals, and that they get that, that moment in the spotlight. I think that is so critical. I remember as a young, young uh, sales rep, uh, in fact, my first uh, technology sales job I was sitting in the big sales conference, right, and they were awarding the, the green jackets for you know, sales guys of the year and biggest deal and all those kinds of things. And uh, you know, I, was, I was kind and I applauded uh, gently in my, in my seat watching the other guys take the stage. But inside, I was dying that it wasn't me, that it wasn't me. I wasn't on that stage. I wasn't getting the award because I wasn't the top sales guy. Mm-hmm. And I've always used that as a motivation, uh, both as an individual contributor and as a leader, understanding that to a degree, whether we want to admit it or not, salespeople can be relatively narcissistic, right? We, sure. we, we, we believe that we're really good and we have that confidence and that swagger. And uh, providing salespeople that moment in the light to, to get that recognition on a more regular and or frequent basis Builds their energy, and and hopefully there's some people that aren't being recognized that it builds motivation, that they want to be that person, they want to be that that uh, that successful example of of closing a deal or, or making their number or whatever it needs to be. I think back to um, uh, probably one of my first sales gigs on is uh, as a sales leader, is I focused heavily on the motivation piece. You know, we've put always put. You know, extra contests in place, and, and we've done it in a different sort of way. I've given away a lot of cars. Uh, I think uh, where you came from at one point, Workfront, we gave away a Dodge Challenger when the theme that year was was challenge. You know, and uh, gave some Porsche away. Porsches away at another company, and and uh, you know we had a, a promotion that I absolutely loved that I people still speak about to, to this day which was a a fast start program the first day of the quarter we called it uh, time to close was the name of the promotion and i bought about a a six foot jeweler's case a vertical jeweler's case with bright halogen lights and it was plexiglass all around and four or five shelves and then i went out and i bought a nice rolex and i bought some omegas if you're watch people they're very high-end watches right and then i bought you know third tier watches and fourth tier watches and Had about 60 or so salespeople on the team at the time. So we bought about 20 uh, very expensive watches. And uh, on the first day of the quarter, I rolled the promotion out and I said, okay, the first person this quarter to retire their quota, come see me and we'll walk over to this case full of watches. And we had men's and women's and all kinds of things. And I said, you get to pick whatever watch you want. If you want the $15,000 Rolex or you want the $7,000 Omega or, you know, the the $1,000 to sew speaks to you, whatever watch you like, you pick out whatever you want. Second place, second person to retire their quota, come see me. Whatever's left, pick your watch. And I got to tell you, it was fun. We put it in the middle of the sales floor. And, uh, you know, sometimes I'd, I'd look over and there'd be three or four salespeople Gawking into this display case, right? <laughs> Saying, "Okay, that's the one I want. I'm going to get my quote, and I'm going to get that watch, and, and the other, and whatever happens to be." But it's 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 these little moments of motivation, sure. right, that keeps the team plugged in. It wasn't horrifically expensive for the company, and uh, I think all the watches were gone by the second month of the quarter. That's awesome. And yes. we had a blowout quarter, right, as a, as a team and as a company. So it's these, these little things that sales leaders really have to be inventive, be creative, think about and execute that drives that motivation amongst the salespeople.
0: That's great. Yeah, I've worked at, you know, different companies throughout my career and uh, the ones that do the best, you know, incentive programs like that just there's so much more vibe and just excitement on the floor than there is when there's no incentive or you know something to work for that quarter, so it, it really does make a difference.
1: Yeah, let me add to the culture question because I think another piece of culture is the is, is the dark side of culture that we as sales leaders have to make sure that we we manage appropriately, and that's the non performers, right? And too often, uh, you know, one company, um, local Silicon Slopes company, called in contact uh, when I joined I as the EVP of Sales and Marketing, and and there were literally dozens of salespeople in the organization that had never hit their number, that not only in the last quarter, but some in the last year hadn't even closed the deal, but the company had maintained these people on the payroll. And, uh, you know, I moved quickly to make that change, and, and we moved the, the perennial non-performers out of, out of the business. And I'll never forget, Damien, that, uh, Dan, that, that one day, uh, one of the salespeople came to me, one of the high performers, and thanked me and said it was so demotivating in the culture that the company continued to hang on to non-performers, that we that worked hard and delivered our numbers, we felt like, what does it matter? What does it matter? So when you build a culture, you've got to think of the upside part of the culture, but also make sure you manage the the darker side of that culture and the performance improvements and getting people to where they need to be. And uh, I think together you can really build a healthy culture amongst the sales team and, and within a company.
0: That's great. So you've talked a little bit about the characteristics that you look for in hiring a sales leader. What about a sales rep? What do you look for when hiring a, you know, an individual contributor?
1: You know, years and years ago, I was, uh, I was uh, in one of my early uh, management gigs, and. And I, at the time, I was I was actually physically fit and and uh, on a treadmill at the at the hotel. And I had a sales conference coming up in a couple of weeks. And uh, being a sales and marketing kind of guy, I was trying to think of <clears throat> what were the what were the elements, what were the characteristics of good salespeople, and and how how do I communicate that to potential hires and to the sales team, and you know what's important to Frank, what's important to success. And, uh, and and I came up I came up with the the concept of I cubed I to the power of three, and uh, and that was kind of the marketing tag to my thought. And my thought was, I need to find and I need to inspire three key characteristics in salespeople. Number one is intensity. They've got to have drive, motivation. They've got to be. You know, I, I'll call it the typical type A personalities. You know, you don't see my foot down here, but it's always moving. I'm always high energy trying to get things happening, right? I need I need a salesperson that is driven, right? And that's the first I. That's the intensity. The second I is intelligence. It's not critical to me what your background is or where you're coming from. What's critical to me is can you learn? Can you learn what the company stands for. Can you learn our products? Can you learn the market? Can you learn sales techniques? Can you learn, you know, the the proper way to, uh, in interacting with the customer, how to teach them that the problem is bigger than they anticipate, how to tailor your solution specifically, think improv to help solve that Mm -hmm. and take control of the selling cycle. So you've got to be very smart. That's second eye intelligence. And the third one is integrity. I try to live this in my in my professional life as much as I can, and um, I think I've got a fairly good rep in the market. Is is you know I'm going to tell you like it is and and be open and clear and honest. But I have zero patience for any sort of salesperson, even a top performer, if they're misleading prospects or customers, if they're not being completely honest in all that they're doing in representing our company, because what happens is no matter how Successful a salesperson may feel, it's, a, it's an undue burden on the company to have to follow them and sweep up all the broken glass from the broken promises. So hiring salespeople, they've got to be high intensity, high intelligence and willing to learn and incredibly uh, honest around all of their, their work and what they're doing. And a lot of that, you know, one of the counsels I give to any salesperson is, when you're when you're meeting with your sales leadership, tell them what's going on. Tell them the truth. If your quota for the quarter is a million dollars, and you don't have line of sight to a million dollars, lay it on the table and say, I'm gonna commit half of that because that's all I can see. That's all I can do right now. Don't tell them it's a million that only deliver a half a million. That throws off all of the planning, the forecasting, all the budgeting, every it makes it very difficult for a sales leader. And in reverse, if your number's a million and, and you've got line of sight to two million, don't tell them it's a million and think you'll be a hero by delivering two million. Mm-hmm. That as well creates difficulties and throws off the process. So it's a key element of integrity is, is tell your leader what's going on. You know where you're sitting really, and where you need help, or where you're going to overachieve, or or, or uh, uh, potentially overachieving, and and keep that communication very very clean, because what that's going to do for a sales rep is it builds trust. As a sales leader, I can look at at any given point in my career, and I can look at my sales team, and I've managed up to, you know, I, almost 400 sales reps at one company, right? Mm-hmm. I can tell you who I can trust. I can look out and see their faces. And I can say that person right there, I trust. And I can look at others that I say they're padding their number or they're they're uh, they're uh, uh, sandbagging their number. You know, and and it creates a little bit of I don't want to call it tension, but let's just keep the the, the the trust concept going here. But distrust between myself and, and that particular uh, less than truthful person. So. Huge counsel is, is keep the communication lines open. Tell them like it is. Help them do their job and do it well, and that creates the value to your sales leadership. That's
0: great. It's interesting as I meet with different sales teams seeing how different organizations, companies, will forecast. And some of them want you to forecast your number even though you can't even imagine how you're going to get there. And others are more like you're describing, where it's just be completely honest and tell me what you know, what you do have and then what you're going to do to get there. That's and uh, I, I prefer the latter, personally.
1: Yeah, you only, know, it only works on the latter, in my opinion. You know, especially for my chair now as a CEO, is I have to trust my sales leader. And uh, the sales leader has to trust his leadership team and his sales reps, and, and and we have to make sure that we know what's going on. And as a CEO, you know, it would be catastrophic if I'm getting lip service from the sales leader, that all's well and the forecast lines up exactly to the number and everybody's you know projecting or forecasting exactly what we're asking them to forecast, and, and then we miss. Yeah. Because the, the, the dilemma and the challenge it places, the burden it places on the CEO is that people forget that CEOs have bosses too, Sure. right? We've got a board of directors, we've got investors, and, and they're always wanting to get updates and, and, and information around the business. I've got a CFO that offices next to me that, uh, you know, creates budgets and spend on, on projected numbers. And it ripples up and down through the organization. And you've got to ensure that um, you're forecasting accurately. And that is so critical in any kind of business. Yeah.
0: Um, I appreciate that. So, here's a question for you, a personal question. In your sales career, have you ever missed a quarter? You know, missed your number in a quarter. And how did you
1: react to that? So, uh, I'll give you the typical sales answer. No, I've never missed a quarter ever in my entire career, ever. Right? You hear that from in, from candidates all the time in interviews. <laughs> and uh, you know, I think sometimes it may be true. I don't know, but uh, yeah, I've missed a lot of quarters. Right? I've missed a lot of quarters. But I've missed very few years. And, um, you know, sales is, is, again, not a linear um, progression, right? There are good quarters. There are bad quarters. There are times when you blow the number out, and there are times when you fall short because you couldn't get a signature on a contract in time, right? It rolls to the next quarter. Or a business condition exists that suddenly the big deal you were planning on gets scuttled because the company had to lay off 10% of of their employee base. It happens, right? And my reaction to that's very simple. and that is,, it's, uh, in my opinion, you know, annually, uh, if we make an analogy to a race, I have four laps: Q1, Q2, three and four. And if I'm running behind on Q1, I work extra hard to ensure that I've got the pipeline and the delivery in two, three and four to make up for one. So at the end of the race, I get to the finish line hitting my number. And, um, you know, I talked about empathy and emotions previously. And if you have a bad quarter and you let it grate on you and, and, and you constantly dwell on, I didn't hit my number, it affects you emotionally. Mm-hmm. And you may not think that you're demonstrating that. The people are not seeing that. Customers are not sensing that desperation. They do. They do. They, yeah. do. they feel it, right? So you have to ensure that... Uh, Coming out of a challenging quarter, that you you, uh, you 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 flush that, and you say, okay, Q2, let's focus only on Q2. Let's get our number in Q2, and get a little bit over to make up for some Q1 miss. In Q3, you do the same thing. You don't think you have to make it all up in one quarter, right? Plan it out and figure it out, and and emotionally um, react in a healthy way, to that challenge and that miss. Because, no, I don't care who you are as a salesperson, you're going to miss a quarter. Yeah. It's going to happen. And the end game is going to be predicated on how you react to that miss. Yeah,
0: that's, that's where we, you really see what you're made of, right?
1: That's it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's, it's, it's tough, but, you know, it's very achievable. Yeah.
0: That's great. So let's shift a little bit and talk now uh, kind of on the front end on prospecting, Just getting into that hunting. Uh, can you share with me quickly what the structure of your sales organization looks like? Are there SDRs? Are there ADMs? You know, anybody that is kind of bringing in the initial leads and then heading off to an account executive. What does that look like here at Rice Point?
1: So a little different Rice Point because we're, we're a relatively small company. We have about 75 employees, so we're not huge. And a lot of that employee base is on technology right now. Uh, let me just give a quick uh, pitch for RisePoint, Point, what we do, please, because please. most people have probably never heard of us. Uh, we're a technology company. I've been the CEO for about two and a half years, and I was brought on to transition the company from kind of a services company to a software company. Our software is used by nearly 400,000 uh, business users um, in some of the best brands in the world. We do an audit compliance platform. And we do things that most people never think of. So when you walk into a Wendy's and you order a a Dave's Deluxe Combo or a Baconator Combo, you never sit there and wonder, you know, is the food fresh? Did they serve me cheese that expired three weeks ago? Were the, uh, the cooks and the handling of the food done properly? Is the back kitchen clean? Is it uh, adhering to local and, and federal guidelines? All those kinds of elements. So our technology is used by these big brands that they uh, they go in and audit their franchise or remote locations to ensure that they're safe, the food's safe, the customer experience is good, and that information is used to help them operationally improve their, their, their own company. So we're the standard worldwide for seven of the 10 top food brands. So if you uh, get a coffee at Starbucks, if you um, eat a pizza at Pizza Hut, if you uh, get a burger at uh, Wendy's or McDonald's, or you um, you want a, a roast beef sandwich from Arby's, they all use our technology to ensure that it's safe and that you have a, a great experience at the, at the restaurants. But we also do hospitality. So if you stay at a Holiday Inn or you stay at a uh, Intercontinental Hotel or a Best Western or any of those. They use our technology to audit the rooms that have been cleaned properly, the pool is safe, the chemicals are being used appropriately, that the lobby's nice, all those kinds of things. And if you're a general consumer, our, our technology is used by uh, huge brands like Abercrombie and Fitch and uh, Victoria's Secret and Coleman and Rubbermaid to ensure that their products are being manufactured in safe environments, and they use us to audit their supply chain to ensure that uh, their products are, are living up to their brand promises. So that's what RisePoint does. So our, our, our sales team is, is uh, fairly typical um, to other organizations that I've, I've created in the past. So we have um, our marketing team that does lead generation, of course, and, and gets uh, people in in the interest stage of what we do. Mm-hmm. We then have SDRs that uh, take that, qualify it out on the traditional kind of BANT methodology, right, Mm -hmm. budget, authority, need timeline, all those wonderful things. And then it becomes uh, what they call a marketing qualified lead, and there's a handoff to a salesperson who validates that it should be an opportunity, that indeed it's uh, it's a real thing to run after. Then our sales guys run after it and close it with sales engineering teams. so.
0: So how have you, with these great brands, McDonald's, Wendy's, Arby's, Holiday Inn, how did you acquire those customers? Were they uh, through, through the marketing channel, you know, finding the inbound lead in that sense, or was there an aggressive uh, sales representative that reached out to them and hunted it? How did that work? Yeah, we don't,
1: uh, we don't have what the industry calls a, a business development rep or BDR kind of role, which is take a list of companies and start calling them and try to find humans. We, we are um, the very small 800-pound gorilla in the space, right? We, we are the biggest player in the industry around what we do. And uh, we, for example, picked up Denny's last year, which was a, a huge account for us. And when the executives from Denny's were in for a site visit here in Salt Lake, I asked them, you know, how did we get plugged into Denny's? And they said, well, we saw you at one of the shows then we asked around and realized that that uh, you really don't have any viable competition. You know, you got all the big brands, and the big brands are very happy with what you do and how you do it. And, uh, you know, it's yours to lose. Let's try to figure out technically if this will do what Denny's needs and, and how we need to do it. So, um, you know, most of it is marketing generated and or word of mouth. We get a lot of that, a lot of references. So it's a very... Uh, tight industry around compliance and around uh, quality amongst these big brands. And, uh, you know, Company X will call up Abercrombie or someone else and say, who do you use to solve this problem? And they say, hey, we use and love Rice Point. And then they'll call us. They'll reach out and and we'll get started.
0: Great. Throughout your sales career, have you had organizations, sales organizations, underneath you that uh, would require the uh, account executives or the sales folks to reach out in an outbound world and try and bring in new business or was it always you know feeding off of the marketing generated inbound leads
1: no it's uh you know even today i made it sound like all comes through marketing but that's not necessarily true you know i think salespeople, i think technologies really help the sales process right the marketing technologies the marketos and the eloquas and and uh you know marketing when i when i first started when i was running marketing for example within contact um, a lot of it was brand and buzz, right? Getting the name out there, getting people to understand who we are and what we do. Uh, there were some metrics involved, but it wasn't really scientific. And then suddenly this whole concept of marketing analytics came through and SEM and SEO, and you had to be, as a marketer, very tuned into the numbers of what needed to happen. And then um, that proliferated to a real upsurge in, in SDRs, BDRs, ADMs, those kinds of roles And then salespeople um, started recognizing that the company was spending a lot of money on marketing, a lot of money on these lead gen qualification teams, and they were able to sit back in their chair and, and just wait for these opportunities to come across their desk. And then their role was to sell those opportunities. Well, I think that's a misnomer. I don't think that really truly exists, right? I think any salesperson who's sitting back waiting for marketing to hand them their opportunities, is going to fail. I, I can cite, you know, many numerous examples over the past couple of years where companies that were spending exorbitantly in marketing and SDR, AD, uh, ADM, and, and, and BDR teams have cut that spending down and gone back to the sales team and said, "You've got to go out and find. You got to hunt. You know, some of these opportunities." And I'm seeing salesperson after salesperson fail because. That's not how they've been doing it, right? They've been literally sitting at their desk waiting for the next opportunity to come across mm-hmm. and then selling and not hunting, not finding. So, you know, it's it's uh, it's a situation to be a successful rap. You have to understand that you own your destiny, right? You own your success. You own your number. You own your paycheck. You own your career. And what are you doing to get there? And if you're strictly depending on others to feed you like a little baby bird in a nest, waiting for mama bird to come by with a worm, right? There will come a time, maybe not today, but in the next six months or whatever, when you're going to starve to death. Right. So I always encourage the salespeople to spend at least 30% of their time self-prospecting, right? Going out and making calls, making target lists, doing some LinkedIn research, whatever they need to do to augment whatever marketing's bringing you. Because if you do not have that skill when your company makes a decision to shift their model, you're going to fail. Right. You are going to fail. And, you know, I, I could think of uh, dozens of people, and, and you probably know many of them. It's a small valley, right? But uh, that have failed recently because that's what they did. They sat and waited, and then when that was turned off, they, they starved to death. So
0: That's, good. that's a good, good number to hear from you. Tell me, as, as a CEO, I'm sure that you get plenty of, other salespeople reaching out to you, trying to sell you yeah. different products and services. What resonates best with you? Is it an email? Is it a, a cold phone call that someone leaves in your voicemail, or is it a snail mail in your in your box? What what works best for you?
1: You know, I uh, maybe I'm overly empathetic to lead gen people, having come <laughs> come up as a salesperson, right? <laughs> But I look at all of them, right? I'll listen to the phone call, I'll read the email, I'll look at the snail mail, I'll, I'll see what they're having to say. And I even go one step further, and, and uh, this is probably silly, it's a big time suck, but I'll even respond to their email and say, hey, thanks for the reach out. We have no fit at this time, have a great day, right? And I do that because I just remember myself in that sure. role early in my career. And, and I know it's that not normal. it's a hard, yeah, <laughs> it's not normal. It's, I mean, people sometimes treat other people very poorly. But I empathize because, man, I was there, right? I was that person trying to feed a young family and, and trying to get that lead or trying to get that deal going. And, and I, I understand what they're going through and the pressures they feel. And I think it's it's worthy of a respectful response, even if it's just no interest. But uh, what resonates, and, and, and I've had some that I've, I've actually engaged with, uh, what resonates with me is if, if they come with an open communication around solving a problem. Okay. And they've done the research, they know Rise Point, they may have, you know, checked some of our blogs or looked at our website... And they see an opening for their technology that would solve what they perceive as a legitimate problem. And they present that to me, not in a – a uh, you see all these latest, you know, fads of lead gens with video attachments and all these kinds of crazy things. But, uh, you know, if, if they can quickly and concisely um, present to me, if you have this problem, I have a solution, then I get interested, right? I want to I want to hear – how they would solve that problem. And uh, I can't tell you how many times, and this is for all the, the lead gen folks, even sales folks that may listen to this, all four of you uh, that know me or whatever, but uh, my family will listen to it probably. But uh, um, when you when you send these emails or the voicemails, take the time to understand what's going on, right? Understand the name of the company, which sometimes is sent to me wrong. Understand my role at the company, which sometimes comes across in the email is, as the leader of technology in your company, I'm sure you have a, no, I'm the CEO. <laughs> yeah, you know, you, if you want just a technology guy, i got a great CTO. The guy's amazing, right? right? But if it's, if, understand who you're speaking with and do some research and you'll find that your your hit rate will be much, much higher, much higher. That's and cool. watch your spelling, watch your grammar. That's always a fun Put some fun time one. into it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, if, if you're going to create a, a valuable line of, of, of work and a career for yourself, be known for quality, right? Be known for doing the right thing at the right time in the right way. And, uh, and you'll find you'll be far more successful than just boilerplating out 5,000 emails in a month. Take your time, send 500 and make them very targeted and very appropriate and very accurate. And you'll find your, your hit rate to be much improved.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with that. I I know in in my career, when I sold to Google and at and and, you know, these other large Fortune 500 companies, it was, I put some time into finding the right person, number one, right, doing your research online, uh, finding the right message that you're going to send to them, and then just, you know, connecting in a polite, respectful way. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about, so there's, there's, everyone uses cell phones now, and a lot of uh, sales reps are able to find executive cell phone numbers. How do yeah. you feel about sales reps texting you?
1: Uh, Text. I'm better with texting than just cold calling my cell phone, right? And, you know, shame on me that, uh, um, you know, for many, many years I I don't ever publish an office phone number. The only number I put on my business card is my cell phone. Mm -hmm. Uh, But because it's there, you know, I I, I would assume that people assume they can just pick it up and and dial it and, and cold call and whatever happens to be. I don't get a lot of them. But I'm I'm a little bit less patient if, if they're calling my mobile phone and they don't uh, immediately have a great value prop right to catch my attention, and um, um, but but again generally okay with it. But but text for me is better because I can answer thoughtfully, and respond back and say, thanks for the text. Uh, you know, yes, I'd like to hear more about what you're doing or no, not a fit. I don't need to offshore my technology to, you know, Cambodia or mm-hmm. whatever you're selling today. So, um, you know, use it gently and 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 be incredibly efficient in what you do. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of guy that I answer my cell phone. I don't just let everything go to uh, voicemail and then kind of weed it out. So quite often, you know, I'll be in a situation where I've got a minute and the phone will ring. and I'll pick it up and it'll be, hi, I'm, you know, Steve or Mary and I'm selling this and I'm doing this and I'm doing the other thing. And uh, again, in in the first few seconds, if they can establish that they understand my business or have a problem, I'll have a good conversation with them. I've had some of these that have gone 30, 40 minutes long. And I've had others that I've said, stop, please, just stop talking.
0: Let's not waste each other's time. Yeah,
1: I, I have no interest in this. And uh, good luck on your on your calling, but uh, I'm not your guy, right? Yeah,
0: that's great. So um, in your mind, what sets apart the salespeople that consistently close more deals than the rest of them?
1: It's easy. In, in, in my humble opinion, it's very, very easy, and that is they take the career of selling seriously. You know, if you go out and you pick any sales floor... And, and you interview, let's say, 50 different salespeople. Uh, probably less than 5% of that floor said, when I grew up, I knew I wanted to be a sales guy. They wanted to be something else. They wanted to be lawyers or doctors or engineers or train conductors or astronauts or something else, right? But based on life experience and life opportunities, they found themselves in sales, when they get into sales, some of them are naturals. I believe that natural salespeople exist. And I also believe that salespeople can be trained and developed. I've done both. I've, I've been able to work with some great uh, examples of both, both scenarios. But the challenge is if you are, quote, unquote, a natural salesperson and you've fallen into the career and it seems pretty easy and you're closing deals, um, sometimes you think it's too easy. And I've got a good friend who's a cardiologist, and uh, I was at dinner with him, uh, I don't know, two, three weeks ago, and we were speaking about something, and, and uh, he was telling me that he had to go to some additional board certification stuff, and he had to study up on some new procedures or whatever happened to be. And I said, really? I said, like, you're one of the top cardiologists in the state of Utah. You're world-renowned. You're, world you, you're board-certified by... Uh, you know, for internal medicine and cardiology, man, you've reached the pinnacle of your career. And he goes, no, you don't get it. Things change. uh, Medical techniques change. Medicines change. And for me, to to continue with my certifications, I am forced to study, to learn, to grow, to develop. I can't stop. If I stop, I'm going to lose my certifications, right? And if you juxtapose that example on top of selling. A lot of these salespeople, when they get into it and they have some early success and they think it's easy, they just kind of keep doing the same thing, right? And and I've preached for years and advocated with my sales team that they own their careers. Their career is their career. And if they they were an attorney, as they originally wanted to be, or a doctor, whatever happens to be, they, were, they, they would be forced to constantly learn and develop and read and read and study and, and experiment and figure things out. Um, so, you know, the salespeople that um, I think are long-term successful are, are those that take the time to take it as a craft, right, selling is a craft. It's not just I'm a naturally gifted guy with a gift of gab and I can make good friends and I can get people to buy my stuff. It's around selling and buying techniques and sales psychology, and I'm a big proponent of, you know, a corporate executive board, which is now Gardner and mm-hmm. the Challenger cell methodology. I introduced that at InContact and Workfront mm-hmm. and here, and and I think they approach it the right way. I, I, you know, challenge my sales team to read a book a week. That's
0: great.
1: And. Uh, and that book could be on the psychology of selling. You know, Steve Martin writes a, a great series of books on that, it's a little bit deeper than some people appreciate. But it helps understand how the mind works in a selling situation. Um, it could be the corporate executive board books, which is Challenger Customer, Challenger Sale, all those kinds of books. It could be something as simple as just basic psychology, how to make a friend, how to, how to control a room when you walk into a party or something, uh, how to have meaningful conversations, how to ask why questions. Uh, you know all these kinds of things whatever interests you but work on your craft work on your career develop yourself because you know the old days of expecting a company to do that for you are long gone I remember early in my career I was a business unit executive for IBM and they they carted me off to executive school out in New York for many many weeks and I lived on site and went through their whole training program and, and you know how to be an executive at IBM And, you know, companies don't do that anymore. Very few companies do that. When it comes to, you know, crunching budgets, you know, one of the first line items that gets reduced or or completely removed is training, right? So if you're expecting the company to spoon feed you the training, it's just not going to happen. Work on your career. I've got a daughter who's very successful. She's a salesperson over at a company called Instructure. Uh, Three years in a row, President's Club, very proud of her. And, and she hates having a former sales leader as a father, right? Because uh, I'm always, always after her. Like, what book have you read recently, right? How are you applying that to what you're doing? And, and she's doing it. And it's, it's, you know, she's 28, making more money than she deserves to make. Very successful because she's taking it seriously. This is her career. And, and salespeople that do that, I think, are long-term hyper-successful.
0: I, I agree with that. That's wonderful. So just uh, in closing here, as you look at leadership, should business leaders be feared or respected and why?
1: I just had that question not, not <laughs> too long ago. Um, one of our, our technical leaders asked me that and said, uh, you know, he actually phrased it a little bit differently, but uh, he, he said, would you, would you rather be feared, respected, or liked hmm. or liked?
0: Get those Facebook likes. Yeah, That's it, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm going
1: to make decisions uh, to make people like me and, you know, whatever. And, and I looked at him and I said, without question, it's respected. You know, I'm going to make decisions as a sales leader or a CEO that people are not going to like because they're decisions that have to be made for the health of the company, uh, the health of, you know, customers, whatever happens to be. I'm going to have to make hard decisions, so I always, I always laugh when I see on, for example, Glassdoor, the CEO ratings at 100%. That speaks to me that they're probably not making some hard decisions. And it's played out a few times here in the Valley where CEOs have been removed because they just, everybody loved them. They yes, were the, man. Yeah, yes, man. Greatest people. Every employee person, every employee uh, loved them. They, they thought they walked on water, whatever they wanted, they got from the CEO. But at the end of the day, they weren't delivering the way they needed to deliver, right? So, so like is kind of off the table. Feared is just wrong. You know, in my opinion, if you're, you're managing or trying to motivate through, if you don't get this deal done, you're going to lose your job. You understand what that's like? You know, your, your husband and kid's going to be able to support themselves. And, you know, it, it's just wrong. It's emotionally, uh, it's, it's emotional terrorism, right? It's just a bad way to play it. But if you're open, if you're honest, if you're empathetic to their situation, if you're motivational at the right times and in the right ways, They'll respect you, even when you have to make hard decisions, even when you have to shrink territories and increase quotas and change comp plans. They'll get it because they know you're doing it and that, that motivation is from the right place, right, from the brain, from the heart, and and they can believe in what you're trying to do. So be respected.
0: I agree. I think that, you know, today, in today's world, and just the, the younger generation that's coming up, they like the communication. They like the openness, like you're talking about, just understanding you know, full visibility into what's going on rather than playing games and trying to guess. So I think that that's really important as a leader.
1: Yeah, and let me touch on that, and I know, I know we're going to wrap up here in a second, but, but this, is, this is counsel from an old guy to a young generation, right? And um, it, it's very simple. If you demand transparency and you demand information, then it's incumbent on you to understand. Agreed. Understand. Understand the context. Understand the, the true meaning of what's going on. Because, you know, quite often, you know, here at, at Rice Point, we have monthly all-hands meetings. We, uh, once a month, open up our executive committee meeting so that's where the cto the cio Mm -hmm. you know my direct reports we get together and we're doing business strategy we open the door it's an open door ec meeting Mm -hmm. any employee can join or dial in and hear what the executive team is talking about
0: that's great
1: and we are i think overly transparent and and very open around what's going on with the business but sometimes a topic may come up i'll give you a great example we were talking about budget cuts so we had to rejigger the budget as we're finalizing our 18 budget And I said, you know, okay, so we're taking another, you know, million dollars out of the budget here, there, and and everywhere. And if I would have stopped there, the people in that room that had that quote-unquote transparent moment would say, we're down a million dollars. Something's wrong, right? So I had to say, okay, for those in the room that may not be familiar, our budget is still currently X amount of dollars over last year. This is not because of financial distress. We've got plenty of cash. This is because we are not going to focus in certain areas. In other words, I had to, I had to take time to explain what context. it meant. Give context. So if you want transparency, kudos to you. If your company gives it to you, even better. But it is your responsibility to understand what it means and not assume what it means. Don't read between the lines. That's it, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, As in a meeting, Frank said we're cutting the budget by a million dollars. We're going out of business. No, <laughs> had nothing to do with that, right? So understand what you're hearing. And if you don't understand, ask a question. Ask Sales 101, a clarifying question, right? So does that million-dollar budget reduction, what does that mean? Why is that? How does that compare to 17? You know, ask what you need to know and don't assume.
0: That's great. Great advice. Well, I really appreciate you taking time today to, to join the Hunters and Closers podcast. It's been wonderful talking with you. Great insight. You've got a great background and wonderful Uh, you know, accolades and awards that you've won. So thank you very much,
1: Frank. My pleasure. Best of luck in all you're doing. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks.